Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Sometimes people criticize the so-called slippery slope argument because it fits so many situations. But what if the slope is really slippery? What if taking a certain action almost inevitably leads farther down the slope? What if the ordination of women in the church inevitably leads to, say, the ordination of homosexuals or the affirming church ideology? It seems to happen every single time. Why? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about female pastors, empathy, and feminism, Dr. Joseph Rigney. He's a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College, author of several books, including Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude, and a recent column for American Reformer titled Empathy, Feminism, and the Church. Dr. Rigney, welcome. Thanks for having me. You say that Empathy is understood and practiced in the world and society is sinful. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, basically, I mean that uh, the way that it's practiced in the modern world, that, that emotion sharing, joining people in their emotions, which is something given to us by God as a design feature, something that builds connection, has been pathologized and has gone off the rails because it's become untethered from reality, untethered from truth, un- untethered from what's good. And so as it's commonly practiced in the modern world, demands for empathy or calls for empathy are frequently, not always, but frequently attempts to manipulate and steer. One author puts it that they're a power tool in the hands of the sensitive. So if you can get yourself placed into the sensitive, the victim category, and then demand empathy, then you have the capacity to sort of steer the ship. That dynamic of a victimhood mentality kind of runs underneath a lot of the, the larger ideological conflicts that we face in the world. But the basic idea is that while compassion and sympathy and, and all of those things are, are good and right and biblical, the modern knockoff and the modern corruption of those virtues usually goes under the name empathy and is really an attempt to, to steer things. Tell us about a recent presentation by Calvin Robinson on critical theory and the fallout afterwards. Yeah, okay. So uh, a few weeks ago, Father Robinson was uh, giving a a talk at an Anglican conference in South Carolina. He had been asked to speak. He's a British intellectual theologian, and he'd been asked to speak on critical theory. He also happens to be black. Sounds like the organizers had hoped he would come speak on critical race theory, but the topic assigned was just critical theory. So he came and gave a, a direct sort of confrontational speech about the role that feminism has played in the the spread of critical theory into the church. And so he called women's ordination a Trojan horse. He called it a cancer that had sort of been the, the camel's nose under the tent, so to speak, that had allowed all the various other kinds of critical theory from critical race theory or queer theory, et cetera, to sort of work its way into the church. All of that's fine and good, except that he was doing it at an Anglican conference in which there were churches represented who ordained women and churches that didn't, because the ACNA has sort of this dual integrities model where some churches refuse to ordain women because they think the Bible forbids it and others allow for it. And so he's speaking to this mixed group and basically calls out the elephant in the room, that this is the fundamental issue. So that's what he did. And then the the more interesting thing to me 
was the way that while in the immediate aftermath, he was sort of thanked for his presentation and say, I know not everybody agrees, but we'll hear some more from some other people here in a bit. The next day, he was basically called into the principal's office and told that he would no longer be allowed to participate in the conference because he had gone off script. He had not done what they had wanted. And it wasn't difficult to sort of see what happened is that a few people walked out of his talk and that having sort of named the elephant, having called women's ordination, this Trojan horse and a cancer, a number of people were deeply offended by it, including probably some of the women who were the female priests. So they put some pressure on the conference organizers, sent some angry emails, uh, and then the conference organizers dealt with it by sort of barring him from participating in the panel discussions and other things that were continuing in the conference. So how is the ordination of women in the church a watershed issue? I think what it does is um, it, it works at two levels. One is, biblically speaking, it's contrary to the New Testament's teaching that those who teach and exercise authority in the church, Paul says, he doesn't permit a woman to do that. And so the moment that you sort of abandon that biblical principle, it's not going to be too long before you abandon other biblical principles. If you say that was then, this is now, well, Paul forbade it then, but now we know better or now we've moved on. It won't be five minutes before others come along and say, well, that's a fun game. Can we do the same thing? Paul said that homosexuality was sinful. That was then, this is now. So it sets off that sort of trajectory hermeneutic where we sort of treat the Bible as a wax nose to suit our modern values. The other thing that it does, though, is the command, the, the, the prohibition on uh, women pastors, female priests, female ministers, is rooted in a, in a larger vision of what men and women are and how God has constituted us. And so put simply like the empathetic sex, which women are the more empathetic sex, they're more relationally oriented, they tend to be more intuitive when it comes to emotional dynamics, which is a great strength when it comes to showing compassion and moving in towards the hurting. It becomes a major liability when you're dealing with the guarding ethical boundaries. So that guardianship role is one that God has built men to be especially suited for. This is part of the reasons that lie beneath the rules that God has laid forth in scripture. And so just as in the Old Testament, priests were all men. Levites, the Levitical tribe had women in it, obviously, but the the actual priestly role was one that was given to men and they were given swords to guard the the temple precincts and the, or the tabernacle, uh, the, the sanctuary, um, to make sure that nothing unclean was allowed in. So there was a guardianship role. And that role, I think, is carried forward into the, into the New Testament in the pastors uh, and elders of the church who guard the doctrine and worship of the church. And so when you allow women into that role, um, the first thing is, is you now have someone who's not built for it. You, you've got women and, and battles are ugly when women fight. And so those doctrinal boundaries don't get policed. But the, but the other thing that it does is it alters the social dynamics in, say, a, a pastor's meeting or a minister's meeting, because men are taught from a very young age that you don't hit girls. You pull your punches. So guys don't mind getting into it, arguing about things being really direct and frank. Like, in fact, we thrive on it. That's that's part of the the fun of it is that sort of theological, ideological combat. And so that's all well and good. But when you introduce a woman or women into those settings, the norms of the group now tend to accommodate more female values, female ways of approaching discussion, which is what they should be. This is This is just being polite and mixed company. But that means that it's much harder for good and godly men to resist error when it's promulgated by a woman because he can't be as direct. He can't say, that's just folly, that's just evil, that's just wicked, in the same way he could if it was a man, because he needs to take into account the fact that she's a woman and he needs to treat her like the weaker vessel, show honor to her in those sorts of ways. And so then it becomes, once you've introduced that element into a denomination or a church council, you started a slide. That'd be, that's why it's the watershed issue. 
You say that faithful men struggle to resist unfaithful women. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that when faithful men have learned, generally speaking, to resist unfaithful men. So faithful men can resist unfaithful men because good shepherds know how to fight wolves. You've been taught, you've been trained to fight wolves. But when it's a she-wolf, particularly if it's a she-wolf who presents as a victim, as presents as someone who's been hurt, presents as someone or who could be hurt by direct speech, then faithful men don't know what to do. And it sort of activates what you might call male agitation. So this is sort of the male form of empathy. So we don't know how to handle it. I think, I think most men really struggle with female displeasure and unhappiness. So if you just think about your marriage, when your wife's unhappy, it can be a very disorienting and disrupting thing. You want to make that unhappiness go away. Now, you know, we ought to lean into that. We ought to be stable and sober-minded and, and work through it with our wives. But when, you, when it's someone else's wife, when it's a, a female priest or a female minister in your denomination, it becomes much harder because now not only do you have your own reluctance to engage and to be direct, but you also have another phenomenon that comes into play, which is the phenomenon of white knights. So when this is sort of a knockoff or a, a corruption of the chivalric ideal, which is here's a damsel in distress. Here's a female teacher in the church who's saying things that are false. She's pushing in, in bad directions. If you confront it, if you lean into it in the way that Father Robinson did in the conference, then you should expect that there will be men who will be distressed by the woman's distress, by her offense, by the, the, the damage done to her supposedly by the direct speech, and they'll activate and become white knights who will come to her rescue by attacking you. And they're attacking you not based on the sort of the substance of the ideas. It's not about that. If it was just men arguing with men, it would generally, it doesn't always, but it can get to, this is about the ideas, which is true and which is false. But when a man is protecting a woman, there's a whole nother emotional dimension that's now in play that complicates everything. And so that becomes really difficult for good men to navigate, but it's what we're called to do in the present moment. What are the differences between male groups and female groups? Yeah, so male groups tend to operate according to male norms. So they're oriented to things. They're oriented. Men tend to be more idea oriented. There's a kind of detachment. It's why men tend to excel in things like science and engineering, and that sort of spatial reasoning and that detachment really comes in handy there. And therefore, male groups, just like young boys, love to um, wrestle together. They they love to throw each other around the room, and it's fun. As we grow up, we don't lose that. It just changes form. We love to debate and challenge and provoke one another. There's a bonding even over mockery, the way that men will poke at each other and prod. And men tend to be comfortable with hierarchy. They, they tend to not mind if, if they're sort of an alpha or a group of alphas. Everybody knows where they are in the pecking order. And there's a possibility of moving up if you can sort of up your game. So that's male groups. Female groups, though, are different because women are different. They tend to be more oriented toward people and feelings and relationships. They don't like the open conflict. It makes them uncomfortable. They don't feel safe. And so the conflict, when it's there, is often sublimated. It's more indirect. Um, this is the sort of gossiping mean girls phenomenon where there's no overt hierarchy, but it's about inclusion and exclusion. It's who's in and who's out. And so those are sort of the general groups. Then the challenge is, is that what happens to mixed groups? Well, historically something like politics or the academy were largely male normed spaces. They were largely oriented by those fight over ideas and debate. And the women that were present were sort of expected, they were a minority and they were expected to sort of rise to that norm. Well, once you have more parity in numbers, it doesn't even have to be 50-50. Once there's a sufficient number of women in the room, we tend to adopt the female norms. 
So men, men pull punches, men become more polite. They rein things in and they, they orient in that way so that they, they seek to be nice and they'll be policed if they're not. If someone breaks the, the social rules of don't say things directly, don't say things in a challenging tone of voice, then others will police them and you'll be excluded from the discussion any further because you've engaged in that direct challenging speech as Father Robinson discovered. Why does attempting to fight unfaithful women teachers with faithful women teachers not work? Right. So some, some in the face of this, uh, the challenge, a lot of groups have sort of decided, well, if they're going to bring women into the, the debate, the best way we can answer that, because it's hard for men to do so without looking like bullies, is to find a corresponding female on the sort of orthodox conservative side. And so you call a, a female teacher or a female writer and author to sort of answer answer the the female error. The challenge is, is that there aren't enough faithful women in that role who are called to that calling because faithful women expect men to shepherd the flock and guard the flock. And so you don't have, there's not enough of them. So you're going to be outnumbered. And it's, it's itself a kind of a subtle form of capitulation. You're, you're adopting that mentality that says women need to fight the battle. Women need to do this. And Lewis taught us that battles are ugly when women fight. We shouldn't push our women forward as sort of the key combatants. Instead, we have to step up to the plate as men, as, as shepherds of God's flock, and be willing to be called names, be willing to be attempted to be policed, but instead calmly, coolly, sober-mindedly address the errors, even when they're offered by she-wolves. Dr. Joseph Rigney is our guest. We're talking about female pastors, empathy, and feminism. How are various Christian denominations already on that slippery slope? We'll answer that question next. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Ruth with Ruth Waits with Naomi, Take My Right of Redemption, Boaz Redeems, Ruth Bears Obed, and then we head back into the New Testament with Intro to James. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western civilization, one student at a time. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine 
and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, president of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship, Confessional Theology, Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're talking about female pastors, empathy, and feminism with Dr. Joseph Rigney of New St. Andrews College. Dr. Rigney, how are various Christian denominations already on this slippery slope regarding the ordination of women? Yeah, so I think um, it's obvious in the Anglican communion, the ACNA is dealing with this, that it's already in for them because they have this dual integrities thing. So they're fighting it at a sort of more advanced stage. But I would say the Southern Baptists are currently dealing with it because they have churches which have female pastors, usually in associate roles or children's pastor or other other sorts of roles. But there's a big debate among the Southern Baptists that's coming to a head, I think, in their June meeting, in which they'll be discussing whether a church that has a female pastor is out of accord with their doctrinal statements. And there's a, there's an amendment to the SBC constitution currently called the law amendment because it was proposed by a guy who's a pastor whose last name is law, which basically says if a church is out of accord on this issue, then we have to disfellowship them from the denomination. But you see the same sort of things in Presbyterian churches. I mean, even the PCA often has this principle called um, a woman can do anything an unordained man can do. A woman can do anything an unordained man can do. And you'll see that show up in a number of different contexts. But the idea is that there really isn't a difference between men and women sort of by nature, but that the biblical commands are sort of overlaid on top of a interchangeable nature. And so, yes, men are pastors, but it's sort of arbitrary. And once you've adopted that egalitarian mindset, you're already sliding down the slope. And then I, I think a lot of churches even just deal with it that maybe don't have non-denominational churches or even some Baptist churches where there's a pressure to sort of push the boundary and say, we need more women up front. We need more women in the room, in the decision-making room. We need to have more representation in the in various contexts as sort of a, a signal that we're not misogynists. And so when that becomes the dominant issue, all of these different denominations are dealing with feminism, egalitarian impulses in their midst. What's the difference between natural complementarianism and ideological complementarianism? Yeah, so complementarianism is, uh, you know, is a word that goes back um, to the to the 80s or so when the Danvers statement was proposed, and it's a statement about it was a response to egalitarian 
attempts to subvert the home by denying male headship in the home, and then to argue for female pastors. And so this term complementarianism was proposed that basically said men and women are equal in value, but they are distinct in role and they complement one another. So that's the idea. Well, even within self-professed complementarians, there's a kind of difference between the natural complementarians, which basically see biblical commands as rooted in divine nature, the nature that God gave us, that biblical imperatives, biblical commands are built on divine facts, on the way that God made the world. And that those facts could be what he did in Genesis 1 to 3, or it could be sort of the general, the nature of men and women. Men are more this way, women are more that way, those, those sort of different traits and tendencies. But natural complementarians say these commands are not arbitrary. They're rooted in how God made the world, and therefore there's a fitness to them and that we need to apply those in all areas of life, that it, it's normal and natural and expected because men are the, are the head of their home. It's normal and natural and expected that they would be um, the elders in the church, that they would be leaders out in the world. That's normal and expected. Ideological complementarians, on the other hand, treat those biblical commands about male leadership as arbitrary law. And that law that God, for some reason, some inscrutable reason, some arbitrary reason, just imposed upon us, but we don't really know why, and we shouldn't try to extend it into any other areas. And so what that effectively means is that they're egalitarians who haven't yet figured out a way to get around a handful of passages in the New Testament. So all of their, their the deep structures of their thought are egalitarian. Men and women are interchangeable. There is no true leader. Men ought not be leaders in general, but just for some reason, God said men are the head of the home. And for some reason, God said only uh, men can be pastors. And it lasts as long as, as their ability to hold on to like first Timothy two and Ephesians five last. But once they are able to sort of reinterpret those, then they tend to move on and cease to be complementarian at all. That's sort of the division. I think you see that play out. So uh, the statement, a woman can do anything an unordained man can do is a good example of what I would call ideological complementarianism, because there's no difference. It's not rooted in nature. How do you account for say charismatic churches, non-denominational churches embracing female pastors while still teaching natural complementarianism. Yeah, this was an interesting phenomenon. So for years I've, I've operated, uh, you know, Wayne Grudem, a, uh, a systematic theologian, uh, at Phoenix seminary wrote a book called, I think it's evangelical feminism, the new path liberalism. And one of the things he argues is any church that adopts female ordination will inevitably slide into affirmation of homosexuality. It's just like clockwork. And so he traces the various mainline denominations that adopted female ordination in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then it wasn't 10, 20 years before they had all gone affirming when it comes to homosexual practice. So he says, this is the slippery slope. The issue though, is that there are some ex examples, notably among the charismatics, the Pentecostals, assemblies of God, where you have female pastors of sorts, often co-pastors, say with a husband or a, a children's pastor or something like that that sort of buck the trend. And so I have friends that are in that world and I've tried to understand why is that? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they really are natural complementarianism. And so they do believe that men and women are fundamentally different and that those differences have relevance in every area of life. So men are the head of the home. They ought to lead out in, it's normal and expected for men to be leaders in all spheres of society. But because of their sort of charismatic theology, 
they argue that God has poured out his spirit on men and women and they both can prophesy and therefore it's fitting and appropriate for women to be leaders in the church because it's so it's almost like natural law gets suspended by supernatural outpouring of the spirit. And so it's really an isolated thing. It's, hey, in this one area, because the spirit's poured out, we can allow women to be pastors in our charismatic churches. But the whole structure of everything else is really natural patriarchal complementarity. And so that's an interesting thing. They also, those churches tend to be more immune to sort of popular respectable ideologies like feminism. They don't feel that pressure as much because of their, they tend to be more working class churches because they're charismatic. One charismatic pastor told me, if you're you're open to praying in tongues, you don't embarrass easily. And so they don't get embarrassed by a lot of the things that more respectable evangelicals tend to get embarrassed by. So the pressure isn't the same. And so they're able to sort of thread this needle where they have these female co-pastors, but they don't go full feminist. They don't go full egalitarian. You had mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention this last summer. There was a dust-up between Southern Baptist Convention and Rick Warren, the former founder and pastor at Saddleback Church in California. And I'm curious what you make of his kind of deathbed conversion to women's ordination and following fairly close upon the heels of Willow Creek Church adopting the, the practice of women's ordination about a decade before. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I think in some cases, those churches tend to adopt a very, you know, they've described themselves as sort of seeker sensitive. Well, the danger of being sensitive to seekers is that what the seekers want, you adapt to. And so in this case, in a feminist culture, which American culture is, then you adapt to it. And so they've probably held on as long as they could because they couldn't quite get around 1 Timothy 2. But then eventually the pressure builds enough that you you start doing all the accommodations. We need more women up front reading scripture in the worship service or doing the announcements or putting women in all sorts of other leadership positions except the pastoral office. And so it's sort of the last domino to fall. And because most people aren't aware of how things work on the internal side of a church like that, everybody thinks, oh, they're, well, they're Southern Baptists. So they're, they're probably fine. They believe what all Southern Baptists believe. But because the, the Baptist faith and message is a complementarian document that says the pastoral office is restricted to men. And so you assume everything's good when everything internally has gone feminist, has gone egalitarian. And then the last domino to drop is, well, actually, women can be pastors. We've rethought it. And that's when everybody wakes up to it. And that's what happened in recent years and why Saddleback was disfellowshipped. And now what the Southern Baptists are dealing with is, is that going to be an isolated thing or are we going to draw a clearer line in the sand? And within those denominations, there's usually three groups that are in play, not just two. So you have the churches that are pushing for women's ordination or are comfortable with it, believe that women can be pastors of, of various kinds. And then you've got the more conservative folks who are resisting that. But in the middle, you often have sort of the moderates who wanted just everybody to get along and don't want this to be a cause of division. They'll say things like, we want to prioritize the mission of the convention over these doctrinal issues. And that's actually often the more difficult battle to win. It's why is this issue sort of a watershed? And so part of the reason I took the opportunity by what happened with the Anglicans to say something is this is how it goes. It is a watershed and we do need to draw that line in the sand. There are issues where I think Christians can agree to disagree. In fact, even on some of there's certain sort of theological debates across denominations where you find, I think in some ways, a conservative Southern Baptist who is resisting feminism 
frequently has more in common with a conservative Presbyterian or a conservative Lutheran or a conservative Anglican on a whole host of issues than he does with other Baptists who are feminist or lean feminist. The, the divide over nature, over the way God made the world is in our day sort of the key battle line. And so it's redrawing denominational divisions in a weird way because certain things, certain debates are sort of less important because that's not where the fight is right now. Whereas other debates are elevated because that's where the cultural pressure and the pressure within the church are coming from. What do you make of Warren's insistence that he did not make this decision bowing to cultural pressure, but he said he went back and re-examined the scriptures and suddenly discovered that he'd been wrong all along on the ordination of women? I think that may be how it feels to him. I sort of doubt it, but he knows his own heart. If he is honestly persuaded, that's fine. But I, I would suspect, again, this I have no inside knowledge of how Saddleback works, but that there was internal pressure building for many years because you're adopting these decisions in who can teach Sunday school classes, who's in the elder room, who is up front, all of those things happen. And so the plausibility structure changes. All of a sudden you're like, yeah, well, if she can do this, why can't she do that? And you begin to really see like, oh, aren't we just interchangeable? And the optical illusion is really driven by all the sorts of things that really are combined into the pastoral office. These, there really is an ecclesiological element here. Because if, if all a pastor does is sort of care for the, the hurting and administrate and manage the church budgets and, and make sure that all the trains run on time, if, if, that, if a pastor is fundamentally an administrator and, a, and someone who cares for hurting people, then it is hard to see, well, why couldn't women do that? But if one of the key things that a pastor, an elder, a bishop, a priest, whatever you call them, if a key thing that that office does is guard the doctrine and worship of the church, then now there is a real reason why you would restrict that office to men. And I think it's that the loss of that sense of pastors are doctrinal guardians. They protect sheep from error. And therefore the empathetic sex is ill-suited to that role that I think is underneath it. And so I, I wouldn't surprise me if in a saddleback context, because it's such a large church that the main thing a pastor does is sort of administrate. He teaches, he, you know, so if he's a compelling speaker and he administrates that someone would go, well, she can speak well from a stage and she knows how to organize stuff. Why can't she do it just as easily as him? Once you've moved that plausibility structure and you've reconceived the pastoral office and away from the doctrinal guardianship, it does become difficult. And therefore it feels very natural to sort of revisit the scriptures and discover, oh, I've misinterpreted this all along. And all of this new scholarship, this feminist scholarship is out there ready to explain away all the verses that I would have leaned on. Dr. Joseph Rigney is our guest. He's author of a recent column for American Reformer titled Empathy, Feminism, and the Church. Does he expect these churches to eventually become gay-affirming? We'll answer that question next. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. 
the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Do you dream about having stained glass windows at your church, but know they are too expensive to ever get them? Ad Crucem has the solution. Our window clings are an excellent way to enhance the beauty of your church without breaking that glass ceiling. Visit adcrucem.com and reach out to us to work with you on this project. Ad Crucem, established in 2014 and still going strong. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about feminism, empathy, and female pastors. Dr. Joseph Rigney is our guest. The 50th anniversary of the walkout at Concordia Seminary St. Louis and the Battle for the Bible in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate is the theme of the February edition of the Lutheran Witness Magazine. An annual digital and print subscription is less than $25. For more information, visit cph.org witness or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness Magazine. So, Dr. Rigney, applying Grudem's maxim you mentioned before, do you expect that these churches that have decided to ordain women will eventually, perhaps within a decade or so, become gay-affirming churches as well? Yes, absolutely. I think that you could look at something like Andy Stanley's church in Georgia, is on the leading edge. So Stanley's been dancing around gay affirmation. They have volunteers, members who are gay, open and practicing, that work with their children's ministry, all of that sort of open secret. And Stanley himself has sort of been very cagey and has been moving very steadily to unhitch ethics from the Old Testament, because I think he thinks that's the only place where those commands reside. But he's sort of moving that way. And I would expect other churches that are succumbing to the feminist pressure to just keep right on going down that affirming route. I think that that's how the train moves. It goes from first, you know, if you had a complementarian church who believes in male headship and believes that male only ordination, well, the first step is, oh, I'm a complementarian, but not that kind, meaning not the patriarchal kind, not the really cranky kind or whatever they would say. I am one, but not that kind. And then they move to, I'm neither complementarian or egalitarian. I'm a third way. And then they move from there to, oh, actually, I'm egalitarian. That's where Rick Warren is now. And then the next step is affirmation of homosexuality. Sodomy is permissible. Because the same logic and the same hermeneutic that 
reinterprets the biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood just keeps right on going when it comes to the ethics of sodomy. Once you've cut that path, you're just going to keep going down that rut again and again. And so I would expect those churches to be affirming. And it may not even take 10 years because the path has been well-trod at this point. What do you mean by urging us to love the indicative? Yeah, one of the things I constantly tell my students is the first imperative is to love the indicative. So before we get into like the particular commands that we have to obey in the scripture, this is of wide application. The first thing is, do you love the way that God made the world? Do you love God? Because he's the fundamental fact. He's the fountain of factood, as C.S. Lewis said. I am that I am. Do you love God? And do you love the way that he made the world? Before you start to then work that out and apply it in all the different areas, are you loving the way God made the world? Because otherwise, if you don't, if you just try to treat God's commands as sort of arbitrary bare commands, over time, the pressure to reinterpret them will be heavy. And so if you resent the commands, if you find them to be shackling, if you find them to be oppressive, as opposed to these commands were given for our good, they're wise, they're holy, sort of the uh, the classic third use of the law in, in reform theology that while the law has nothing to do with our justification and the law has nothing to do with how we become righteous with God, it does offer us a guide to life. It does show us the way that God intends for us to live. And so do we see it as a good thing, as a wise thing? Do we love the way God made the world? Then the commands we cut with a grain of reality. Instead, there's a lot of people who find them shackling because of worldly influences, and therefore they're always looking for workarounds. They're trying to find ways to evade the force of the commands because they don't love the indicative. How do we develop the fortitude to resist this slide toward the ordination of women? So, yeah, this is one of the things I think that was actually misunderstood about my article. I think a number of people read my article as sort of an attack on women and a blaming of women that, oh, you're saying women are the problem. And I said, no, I actually don't think that. I think that actually men who have abdicated are the problem. And my article was an attempt to sort of strengthen weak hands and feeble knees by encouraging men to be sober-minded, steady leaders who are clear-eyed about the challenges of your faith, who are stable, have a gravity in their soul because they're planted on the rock, and that are ready to act in appropriate ways in their denominations, in their churches, in their homes, in order to be faithful. And so there is a kind of Christian fortitude that's necessary to be able to endure false accusations that will inevitably come, the hurt feelings, the offense, the agitation of the white knights and the pressure from them. All of those things are going to come if you try to hold the line on these key issues. You will be called names. And so you need to be able to cheerfully endure it. Well, that means that before you enter the fray, you need to be a steady, sober-minded, courageous man. So you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I wrote a book that came out last year with Crossway called Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude. And then here in about a month, I've got another book called Leadership and Emotional Sabotage that's on basically sober-minded leaders in the present chaos and agitation and angst of the 21st century um, and how that plays out in our homes and our churches and in the world. And so this is, I think, a, a fundamental issue that we need leaders who have the stamina, the moral strength rooted in the gospel, planted on the rock of the word that are able to resist the inevitable sabotage, manipulation, and pressure while continuing to be compassionate, continuing to be patient, continuing to be kind um, in all of those ways. Those are our obligations, but true compassion, true care, true kindness flows out of sober-minded steadiness. It's not angsty, passions-driven, you just go wherever the winds of doctrine or the passions of men take you. You've got to be planted on that rock. What's the best antidote 
to this confluence of empathy, feminism, and the ordination of women in the church? Well, I think that underneath it, the Bible talks about the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. So the passions is the biblical category for our impulsive desires, our immediate and impulsive desires that are often very strong and can be overpowering if we don't watch it. So these are things like fear, desire in its various forms, could be sexual desire, desire for other things, could be anger as a passion, pity, what we often call empathy, pity, care for the hurting is a passion, these intense emotional reactions. The modern world, and this isn't necessarily unique, but I think our modern world is in some ways has elevated the passions, we call them feelings, to the highest point. So our feelings, God, should feelings lead the way? And you look around in our culture and you see like, if you feel something, then it's valid. It has to be validated, has to be affirmed, has to be endorsed. So if a man feels like a woman, we got to validate that, validate those feelings, validate that passion. So the biblical antidote to that is sober-mindedness because the modern world is drunk on passions. It's drunk on feelings. It's drunk on emotions. And so if they're drunk on those things, well, we need to be sober. We need to sober up, which means we have a clarity of mind and a stability of soul and a readiness to act all rooted in who we are in Christ, how God has made the world and how he's remade it in Christ. We plant our feet there and that gives us ballast in our boat so that we're not tossed by the passions. Our own passions could be internal to us, or it could be the passions in our church or our passions in our home or our passions in the wider culture. We don't want passions to be leading. We want passions to follow. They are important. There is a place for anger. There is a place for intense desire or for pity, even for, uh, there's a holy kind of fear and concern. All of those are legitimate, but they need to be governed by us. And we need to be governed by God, God over our minds, over our intellect and our will and our intellect and will govern our passions as God restores control of us to us. Dr. Joseph Rigney is a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College author of several books, including Courage, How the Gospel Creates Christian Fortitude, and a recent column for American Reformer titled Empathy, Feminism, and the Church. You'll find a link to this column and to Dr. Rigney's book, Courage, at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Rigney, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss King David dancing before the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and liturgical dance. Our guest will be Dr. Andrew Steinman. And we'll respond to your email, talkback at issuesetc.org and the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues Etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. 
the expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus.